Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguese, Communications Director for the Foundation. The event we have for you today is a fun conversation with the talented Mark and Jay Duplass. They're brothers, and quite possibly two of the hardest working people in Hollywood. When they're not writing, directing, producing, and acting in their own films, which have included The Puppy Chair, Cyrus, Jeff Who Lives at Home, as well as their HBO series Togetherness, they're starring in equally awesome shows. Jay can be seen on Amazon's Transparent, Mark is on FX's The League, and both can be seen on Hulu's The Mindy Project. On this night, the brothers talk to moderator Kirsten Smith about their work ethic and the hustle behind making and producing your own films. Their success is really a testament to that independent spirit that's only grown with the advent of new accessible technologies. It was only apt that filmmaker Sean Baker joined the conversation midway. His film Tangerine was executive produced by the Duplass brothers and was shot entirely on an iPhone 5S. They all shared some great stories and lessons learned from that process. We've also got some great events in the pipeline, so join our email newsletter list to hear about them first. You can sign up at wgfoundation.org. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation with Mark and Jay Duplass. Hello. Hello. I'm your moderator, Kiwi. He didn't say that you weren't an a-hole. He just said you weren't a-holes. I, noti- I noticed that. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. It's the details, guys. Yeah. He was really selling that we're not an asshole thing. Yeah, yeah. He's working real hard at that one. Do you, do you guys have a bad reputation? Is that what's happening? Thou doth um, protest. There's, there's a third Duplass brother we keep chained up in the basement. <laughs> He's the real. It's like Sloth from Goonies just hanging out down there. Very angry. Being a, being a dick. So, okay. This is the beginning of my moderation. All right. So as far <laughs> you have You have like a 10-minute monologue to start us, right? I do. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> okay. So as far as I can tell... You've written seven movies between the two of you. You've directed five movies. You've written short films. You've created a television company at HBO. And you write, direct, and produce and star in this awesome television show called Togetherness, which I love and I'm sure everybody here loves. And then you're, are, you doing, are you doing an animated show also on HBO? Yes. And you also, you've produced 21 movies. This is my math portion of the program. And then, um, and you've also, you've acted between the two of you in like over 400 films and episodes of TV. Did you know that? That's incredible. I did not know that. I think that's 98% the league. It might be the league. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of that. Wow. Yeah, 84 of those are the league, I think. Um, so I guess I'll start by asking you the question that people ask me and my writing partner all the time, which is, how did you guys meet? It's <laughs> a good story. We've been actually waiting for the right moment to tell everybody this, but we're not brothers, guys. It's one of the great marketing tools is to be a brother's team. And you could spend 50000 on a publicist, or you could be brothers. You can be... <laughs> Fake brothers. Um, How is it that you guys can be brothers and work together? So we have been asked that that question by press so many times. 
and and we finally just get to tell the truth. <laughs> I don't really know who you are, and I don't like you very much. And oh, yeah, and that's okay. So a question for you is: We're rich. <laughs> were you were you guys always very like? Were you best friends when you were little? Did you have hostility towards each other? Were you just instantly close? What what was that like? It's gonna get real boring. Yes, we were best friends. No, it's it's it's. I mean, Jay's four years older than me, so um, it was uh, kind of on him to be nice to me and want to include me. I wanted to do everything. You know, I was like, he knew how to work the camera, and I wanted to be a part of it. He, like every other brother, could have just excluded me and just been like, I want to go play with my other friends who are up to my intellectual standards. You're like a peon and really boring. Um, and he and he and he was great, and he included me in all that stuff. Um, and I got you know to like hear David Bowie when I was eight years old, and like um, and I think a lot of the things that bonded us early on was um, our lovely parents who are here tonight. They're real short. Oh, there they are. Oh, okay. Um, okay. um, they're, they're pretty short. They're pretty short, guys. Uh, they did this great um, and terrible thing for us, um, which was they. They kind of let us sit in front of HBO uh, at a young age and soak in a lot of content that was highly inappropriate for us um, to be watching at that age. And so that was a big bonder for us. It was like we would come home from school, and it was like, you know, 1982, and Jay's nine, and I'm like, I don't know, five. And we were like, well, let's just see what's on. We're like, Sophie's Choice. This is interesting. Watch this. And that rolled into like uh Kramer versus Kramer, Kramer versus Kramer <laughs> and then ordinary people um then Tootsie and Tootsie uh -huh. and like we watched all these adult grown up movies and that just kind of like it developed our taste and kind of brought us yeah I don't know it, all, it, of it, friends, all of our HBO all of our friends were watching Star Wars and we were just like what's all this like dragons in the sky planes zipping around and shit where are the feelings man feelings. And Where's the middle-aged malaise that I've become so accustomed to? <laughs> Where's that hard-hitting divorce drama? <laughs> and did you were you given a camera as a as a gift, or like how did you think? Well, we can do this. No, we were not. I mean, we had a very not to say anything. We had a very unmanaged youth. Heavily unmanaged. We were youth. safely tucked away in the suburbs in a place where we couldn't get hurt. Big wide streets. My parents knew everybody in the neighborhood, and we were let to run free. And what what year did you buy that camera? You bought the yeah, so huge VHSC camera that our dad bought. Yeah, to to film to film the family and like you know just posterity. He didn't know how to use it, so I had to learn how to <laughs> yeah. figure it out. It was the one with the VHS with the full size tapes and then the separate VTR that you you to hook it up and the battery was like this big and it lasted about 22 minutes. I J and Jay could operate the camera. He was he was the only one in the house who could operate it. I would carry around the VCR thing. I have like permanent shoulder damage. <laughs> from being like five years old and carrying this thing around. And so we started like commandeering the camera and making little movies. And I think you were a VHS Sherpa. I was a Sherpa. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was. <laughs> um, and that, that's kind of how we got started making things. Right. And then 
Well, so your parents must have a really great work ethic that they also are not. <laughs> yeah, there's. <laughs> well, our dad like is a is a sick uh, workaholic individual as we are. We have luckily inherited this, which you need in this business. Uh, you need to be a maniac. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think like you know, just in terms of like why we work so much or where that came from, it's kind of hard to pin that down. But I think we were just. We always felt like we're coming from nowhere. We have no connections in this business. We have no business like being here. So if we're going to try this, we have to just do everything we can. And, and our whole lives, we would just like live in the cheapest apartments possible. We, we've, we sacrificed everything so that we could just, we we're just always working, always working, you know, which is like, I mean, it was helpful and stuff like that, but it's also like, you know, not always fun. Yeah, and I mean, the IMDb credits, I mean, I get freaked out when I go on IMDb and I see our credits, but I really think it's because Mark and I, we don't really, we don't even care about the positions. We're just two dudes making stuff and making stuff relentlessly. And I was talking to people in the lobby earlier about, because everyone wants to know how the hell we do it. And I think the biggest thing about the volume is that uh, we pretty much make everything that we develop and we create things in a way that we just don't get involved with anything that's like not going to happen. And even when we were making, you know, $10,000 feature film, um, our motto was always like, we're going to make this thing. We'd even, we'd be taking meetings and people would be interested in potentially investing. But the thought was always like, this is getting made in August. We are making this. And if you would like to come and be a part of that and give us $2 million, great. But otherwise, it's going down in August for $10,000. And we would literally say that. We would, like, <laughs> tell them the budget, which was m- maybe dumb. I don't know. We're, we, we were too dumb to know the difference. And we, But I think there was this sense, eventually, as we kept making these things and kept getting them to Sundance and we would sell them, like, the industry started to be like, oh, we, these guys are not going to stop. We have to, like, give them deals now. We have to, and then that's when we started finally getting paid to actually work as opposed to, I mean, it was, it was intense for a while when you just make stuff and you have to take it to Sundance, and it's like, it's either going to sell this week or it's not. Everyone's like, Sundance is so fun. It's like the worst week of your life. <laughs> so was South by Southwest, was that your first festival that you went to? Was the Puffy Chair... South by or and Sundance the big both? the big like I guess where we took like that first quantum leap in our career was our first short film got into Sundance in like okay. 2003 right. um, that felt like oh now like just getting to Sundance with anything that felt like a big leap for us you know and that was like this little three dollar short film we made in Jay's kitchen and and it was like the ugliest and the shittiest sounding movie that had ever played at the festival but it was like something people saw something in and they liked and 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 so what happened from there? That was like 2003, um, and then we started saying, well, you know, let's 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 try and figure out how we can make a feature film that still follows this basic ethic. You know, um, there's always this feeling. I think that this erroneous feeling we get from people in the industry. The one thing we consistently hear is like, you know, I made this short, or I wrote this thing, and like, man, somebody at the you know, at, at the shift companies reading it and like, I was feeling really good, you know, and then I see them, they're starting to settle into like, oh, they're going to buy my thing and I'm good now, you know, and I'm just like, 
no, that's not going to happen. Like people like your stuff all the time, but it's never going to happen. So we just kept driving that thing forward saying, well, we made a $3 short. Let's come up with a feature we can make that we can then sell, you know, like a $10,000 feature that's that uses all the stuff that we have around us. We could shoot in our apartment. We could shoot in my van. Let's use those things and write for it. And that was the puffy chair, which was 2005. And that went to Sundance. Um, and a quick question. Um, so when you had your short go to Sundance, did you kind of have those feelings of like, now we're going to get an agent or a manager and then things will fall into place? Or did you ever get into the parties? Oh, really? (laughs) We, we did at some point figure out that, um, David Arquette had a movie at the festival and his name was probably on the list. And we were like, felt that Jay looked enough like him that we could go. And get in as David Arquette plus one. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. So we ruminated about this for a while, walked up and down Main Street uh, thinking about it, and then like got so scared of being rejected and how embarrassing it would be, or God forbid David Arquette was already in there. Um, and you were going to be Tim Blake Nelson. I was going to be Tim Blake Nelson, because we're like, no one knows what he looks like, so it'll be fine. Um, this was, uh, yeah, before our brother were out there. Um, now, we were just thrilled to be at Sundance with a movie. We had no yeah. expectations at all. We were just Guys, like, you can come in. You're just standing over there. No seats. There's no seats? Oh. Look at this, guys. Teamwork. Teamwork. It's all happening. Um, what we just figured out is they actually... No, take your time. They thought it was the Coen brothers. They didn't want to sit down. (laughs) And we were also welcoming and just forced them into an hour of pontification from two people they don't know. (laughs) Congratulations. Uh, So when when did you did you ever have that feeling of like, oh, we're gonna get an agent? Yeah. So we we didn't think like, oh, we're gonna get an agent, but we actually did get an agent out of Sundance. And that was for a moment exciting. And they were like, we're going to package your next movie. And we're like, great, what's packaging? You know, um, But we also had some friends who were smart enough to know that like, well, you know, packaging, which is you're going to put together with a, a, you know, at an agency with this director or this cast member. And then we're going to get financing and you're going to be the next Napoleon Dynamite sale, you know, and and we just very quickly realized that that's a waiting game. That's a pain in the ass. But we said, we shouldn't close ourselves to that. So why don't we pursue that? But no, as Jay had said, the backup plan, which is probably going to be how we do it anyway, is that we're going to make this movie and not wait too long. That basic ethic has applied to everything we have done so far and has been so extremely helpful to make us productive and keep moving. I mean, we wrote scripts for that agent out of Sundance. We wrote like two scripts feature scripts as we were continuing to make our shorts and the agents got the scripts and they were like wow these are actually pretty good and they did nothing they liked the scripts and they still did nothing are they still your agent no (laughs) uh but yeah it was the that whole ethic of like no one is gonna do anything for you like no one you're you have to do everything or I guess the you know the more clear version, it might happen. It's a possibility that that might happen, but those stories are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer, and you're just setting yourself up for a lot of bumming out if you do that. So you go to South by Southwest, and you have the puffy chair, and then like mumblecore explosion. Did you feel like you were part of the mumblecore movement? The godfathers of yes. mumblecore. <laughs> 
Were you like, cool? It's weird to be a godfather of a movement that you don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) We were were totally excited because the New York Times wrote about us. So we're like, you can call us the shit eaters. We don't care. (laughs) You're writing about our movies. This is awesome. Um, I think in the, you know, like 10 years later now, it's like, oh, that name maybe sounds a little pejorative. <laughs> um, and, and it kind of became uh, a bit reductive, I guess. But yeah. at the time, it was so great to have $10,000 movies being written about. Right. We didn't curate anything. It was just an accident that basically a camera came out in 2005 that could shoot movies cheaply. Um, and we were lucky to be in that place at that time. But that meant that now $10,000 movies were going to be decent looking and get into festivals and that's kind of what came out of that right and were you part of that was there a community in texas like with bujalski i mean it was really just and swanberg and these were they all friends of yours or was it just kind of an accidental collection of it was an accidental sort of i think three or four of those movies showed up at south by southwest um we had just premiered at sundance and we went to south by next and all of the um, and Matt Dentler, who was running South by Southwest at the time, was, if anything, he's responsible for Mumblecore because he was curating uh, these $10,000 and under movies about real things, about the real lives of people in their 20s. It was basically low-budget naturalism. That's it all was. it was. Yeah. Nothing new, really, you know. Um, but we did all meet each other there. And then, you know, Mark and I kind of, like, lived on the film festival circuit because we had nothing better to do. We would just <laughs> go to festivals all year and work on, we, we, together, we'd share a hotel room and just work on the next thing together. And so we did become good friends with those people, and certain people had certain pieces of equipment, and whenever one of us would make a movie, we would all FedEx our equipment to that person. Oh, that's so cool. And people don't even know about that, actually. That's like pretty much... We're the, breaking a story right we're now. We're breaking a story. <laughs> uh, that's probably like the most cohesive... And we did act in each other's films, but we did that with other. Yeah. That's what you do when you live on the film festival circuit. Is like you're you've used up all your friends who aren't in the <laughs> film industry, yeah. and and now you have other filmmakers now who will come and join you and help you. So when you're in the hotel room, like writing together, what does that look like? Is one person typing? Is one person pacing? Are you acting out things? Or how, how is that process? Yeah, I mean, it's changed so much through the years for us, honestly. Um, you know, the, the earlier stages of that were uh, very fear-based, very panic-based, very like, okay, we wrote a short film that's eight minutes, and it's like one long scene, and it works. So the feature we make should be like 11 of those eight-minute scenes <laughs> in a row. <laughs> Because it won't, it has a less chance of sucking, and it was very defensive based, but it was I think helpful for us at that time. Just we got very practical and very scared, you know, and and that was very much a lot of like us telling an oral story to each other and seeing challenging each other, like you know, now we're thinking about this too much. So let me just start telling you the story, and then when I bomb out, you pick it up, you know. So like. Okay, so it starts, uh, it's, it's a couple, and there's a lot of stress with them, and then maybe over dinner they're fighting, and, and then Jay jumps on and, and picks it up. And, then, and so we start going back and forth with each other, and then once we've got that down, we break out the note cards, write the names of each scene 
on the note cards. Um, Still haven't really written anything. Haven't written anything. And so we have the name of the scene and then, you know, on the back is a description of the scene. You know, like for those of you who've seen, you know, the puffy chair, the opening scene, it would be like uh, Josh and Emily dinner would be the title of the scene. In the back it says, you know, we start to see that this baby talk is hiding a lot of weird passive aggressive behavior. He gets a phone call from his boss, ignores her, and she blows up and, and swipes the dishes. Great. Got know what that scene is. It would A to B to C, and so we do that for all the scenes in the movie. Get a little stack of note cards. Then once we've got that thing, Jay and I run into a lot of trouble, or used to run into a lot of trouble, writing linearly on a laptop because we look at what we've written and then criticize ourselves and become paralyzed with fear and are totally in the wrong side of our brain. Not um, like you guys. Not like you guys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and it took us a long time to crack this. And then this accidental thing happened, which was like, um, I was going to try to take a crack at some early scenes. I was a musician and I had this terrible, like repetitive stress injuries in my arms and I like couldn't sit at the computer and write. And it was too painful. And so I was like, I'm just going to start like talking it out into a dictaphone. So what ended up happening was it ended up freeing me up in this great way where like, because you can't stop it really and you can't look at the words I didn't criticize myself so I got into this vomit draft mode where I would write something that was I mean honestly 30% of what ended up being in the movie but I would vomit out vocally all those scenes from the cards get it down to the computer send it to Jay and it would be poorly voiced with the characters too fat no poetry at all in the scene descriptions but really well paced because my body paced it, you know? And then Jay would come in, and then he would just, like, basically revolutionize that thing into kind of the movie, and then we'd go back and forth. Sending documents back and forth to each other. And when you, you did, you talk it out, and then did you go and transcribe it? That seems... I would have someone transcribe it for me. I would, I, would, I would have either <laughs> Katie, my girlfriend at the time... Yeah, Jen, uh, Jay's girlfriend, now wife at the time. Um, yeah, and, and so someone would just dump it onto a page for us. Excellent. And that, that well, we'll talk about how the process has changed, yeah. I guess, um, too. So there were like three years, according to your credits anyway, between Puffy Chair and Baghead. And what was going on in those three years? Were you writing stuff and packaging yeah. and hustling? And were you having any... Hollywood um, anxiety or yeah. We, we, after Puffy Chair, we moved to L.A. Um, and we, because you know we were living in New York, and um, uh, we learned that the film industry is not in New York, despite what people in New York think. Um, <clears throat> no offense. Uh, so we we came to L.A. and we were, we started taking meetings, and um, we did all of our generals, right? And so we did this very specific thing that happens. And this is like probably our one year of like where we didn't make everything. We made nothing. Now, I won't say that because we were developing Cyrus pretty quickly at that time, but that was also a long-winded development process, which we would never do again. Um, But, okay, so... Everyone met with us, and they said, these guys are funny. They can do relationships. We have a movie that's ready to go in, like, 11 weeks. And if in you, 11 weeks, we're going to lose this actor who's attached to it. This, this actor who's um, had a boner in seven different movies. Like, that's the actor, you know, this kind of actor. And um, 
And so what we need you to do is like rewrite the script because it's it's not that good. And then if you want to direct it, you can direct it. And so Mark and I very clearly we love the puppet chair so much. That combination of comedy and relationship on we and dramedy is exactly what we're looking for over here at such and such pictures. Great, sounds awesome. So what Mark and I would inevitably do is go home for and spend a week on this and just do our thing. We would tell each other the story orally. Trying to recrack that broken script just to get it into production. Beating the shit out of it, beating the hell out of ourselves. I mean, it was like a rigorous, rigorous process. I mean, we were relentless. How many did you, how many of those? We probably did, did this four or five times, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, and, so, and then we go back and then we say, here it is. You know, that 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 Barton Frank feeling, here's the puppy chair, what you asked for, you know. And they're like, this is incredible. We can't make this kind of a movie at such and such pictures. You took a lot of the broad comedy elements out of it. This is not really a marketable picture. Sure, it's such and such pictures. We don't make good movies. <laughs> <laughs> we love this good movie, but we can't make this here. Yeah. And so we were like, oh, this is interesting. All these people who said, we love you so much. We're dying to work with you. They're just trying to get the opportunity for us to give them some free work and maybe steal some of those ideas. And then hopefully we would come back with a broad idea, but they never wanted the puffy chair. They said they did, and they're actually unrealistic a lot of times. They think you can have like a really nuanced, interesting movie in this broad comedy premise, and it's just, it's trouble. It was trouble for us. We wanted to have set pieces, but also be grounded. Yes. Yeah. Grounded set yeah. pieces. Do you think that that really happens where, <laughs> where uh, the ideas get stolen, if a right, or not stolen, borrowed, whatever, accidentally. Yeah. We're not super sensitive about that. I mean, like, yeah. shit happens, and, and sometimes, you know, they don't even know they're doing it. They heard it. They have 150 ideas a day, and so I think it just happens. So, Do you think it's worth it for young writers to take those meetings and pitch their takes on material, Yeah, even knowing that? Well, what we figured out through that process is that all those people um, came to realize that we were good filmmakers and that we knew story that we were like it w puffy chair wasn't a fluke that we actually are very obsessed with plot and that we know we didn't know that we knew but they were realizing that and some of those people would change jobs and then start offering us better things hey couldn't do that two years ago want to bring you in and do your thing now and so just the opportunity to show people that we knew what we were doing we didn't know at the time we were just crying because we had no money and we were turning down yet another potential to make a dollar in the business and i think to be clear it's okay to take those meetings as long as you are not making that the major priority and that you are building something that can be made and that puts the power in your hands to do something. So that as long as you're doing both those things, I think it's fine. And it did lead to some cool things. We signed a blind deal with Universal who really liked us and we wrote a script for them that we ultimately just took back and made on our own later. Um, but, you know, we made some, made some money. It was called the Dodecapentathlon um, and it was there for a while and then we brought that later. Um, and then um, at the, at the, at the, during this time, we were building the script for Baghead, which is our second feature, which we're like, oh, this has got horror elements. This is going to sell great. And then everybody wanted to make Baghead for like $2 million with big movie stars in it. And we were like, well, the movie's about people who aren't famous in particular. This would be a little weird to do that. Or there are a lot of independent people who are like, you know, we want to make the movie for like 
three or four hundred thousand dollars pay you guys about fifty dollars to make it um and then own all the upside when it sells and so we started to be like hmm puffy chair that we made for ten thousand dollars made actually like a hundred thousand dollars and everybody shared in the profits that thing that we did only because no one would hire us this might be the way to do things. So we said, fuck it. We're going to go ahead and make Baghead for 50 grand of our profits. And then we turned around and sold that at Sundance for like $300,000. And then we were like, oh, wait a minute. We might not need these people. Right. And that was a big eye opener for us. And then those people were like, they don't need us. <laughs> go get them. Go get them. <laughs> and that's when we learned that Hollywood was a giant junior high dating scene. <laughs> The more you say no, the more they want you. <laughs> they they thought we were just playing hard to get. It's like that joke. We're like, no, we'd kind of rather make this on our own. Like, I see. But if we offer... No, 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 no. But like, seriously, I think we just want to do this on our own. I like the, I like the way you're working this. This is good. This is good. No, but, but like, seriously, I don't want to work with you. Ooh, that's a good one. That's good. <laughs> we actually told a company at a certain point... Uh, this is nuts. I mean, we love this guy still. I'm not going to name him, but like he had a pretty good project and he presented it to us and Mark and I worked on it and then we realized at a certain point um and we told him, "Hey man, this is awesome actually, but um there's like three of our friends that would make this like way better than us." Like Ryan Johnson, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bode. I mean, we like named them. And they literally started laughing and like, are you, are you talking yourself out of a job right now? Are you really doing that? But it, it was just so obvious to us that it wasn't what we were great at, you know? And so, and, but it is, you, it's very easy to blow minds in Hollywood. You just say no. <laughs> but I guess you said yes to Fox Searchlight and you made Cyrus there. And how, how was that? transition into like a studio development process that was our biggest transition we've ever gone through you know coming from making a fifty thousand dollar movie with like a 10 to 12 person cast or crew total to like a fully unionized six million dollar movie with a hundred person crew and and in particular that long developing um development process um and we learned something great in that process you know and you know we could talk for three hours about it i don't want to suck up all the time on it but the the basics of that were that um, we spent years beating up that script. It was groupthink. It was a lot of discussions, having to explain why we wanted to do things. We'd never had to explain that to people before. We just look at each other and we're like, oh, that's going to be awesome. Let's do it. And, and the talking to the death of that movie murdered all of the love and magic in that movie. It just destroyed it. And they greenlit the movie after a year and a half of development. And we looked at the script and we're like... It's over. So it was we. So good. I thought it was so good. Well, there's the stories not over, oh, baby. Okay, sorry. Hey, you're just in the second act. I didn't roll credits. There's a, there's this a is twist. Just, this there's is just a low point with the sad score before the montage kicks in. Yeah, we're only on page twenty-nine. There you go. Yeah. So we we called our producer and we said we don't want to make the movie. Um, and he was like, "What are you doing? They finally greenlit the movie. Like it's crazy, you know." We're like, "We feel like it's lost its magic and its juice, you know." Um, we like this older version of the movie that we wrote, which admittedly actually has like some shaggy edges to it, but it's like 
a fluffy, lovable dog that has a big heart and it's real and it's not like from the brain. It's from the heart. And we know we can make this great. Um, and Searchlight, God bless them, let us make go back and make that movie. Part of the reason we were able to do that is we had actors attached. And once your actors are attached, they get to kind of rule the project. And so we went to our actors and we're like, will you support us in our bid to make the original script? And they did. We did an accidental power play. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we did not know what we were doing. And also, it was the cheapest movie by far. I mean... They when we brought them the movie, they were like, "Well, we we were like, we think we can make this for like six. You know, they told us what their overhead was, and they were like, "We we don't make movies for under ten million dollars. We've never done it. You know, and so we brought our ethic of, and we just wanted, we wanted to take as little money as possible because we just wanted the pressure to be off, and we wanted to be in that underdog position. And you know, and that is a something really important that I'd feel bad if we got out of here without saying is that you know part of how we've made our business is by not overextending uh, the price points of everyone who has paid for our stuff and really trying to see this as an ecosystem that the financiers all have to be alive, the producers have to be alive, the distribution, the marketing team has to be alive. You've got to live to fight another day. Our largest box office smash so far is $10 million worldwide <laughs> with Cyrus. But we've never lost money on a movie. There are little bits of money that people make, but we always stay alive to fight another day. And it's really, really important. We find people just so unrealistically just like battering for the biggest price that they can get on stuff. And like it kind of ends up hosing you a lot of times. I heard actually that um, when you made Jeff, who lives at home, for, with Paramount for I, that Paramount, like the physical production people were like coming there to learn from you to figure out how to make a movie at your. Budget level is that? I never it? heard that. He's news to us. They were there, They're watching. There. Yeah. I think they were like taking notes to try to figure out how you guys did it. Well, we made that movie with J Jason Reitman. Sort of like set us up with Steve Rails, who was his guy, and uh, Paramount was just like on board. But it was really like they were the distributor. They weren't the financier. So that an, might have been part of what that yeah. was. But they were there, and they were very, very, very interested in the process. And even Jason was interested in the process because Jason came from like a bigger world. Um, and you know, uh, we're just doing our thing in New Orleans. Um, and then you switch, so then you got your universal project back and then you went back to sort of a more down and dirty lo-fi way of making We would actually kind of, sh we'd actually shot that movie before we made Jeff Lives at Home. We just took oh, a while did? to okay. kind of bring it out. We shot it, it before out. Cyrus actually. Yeah, actually, that's right. We shot it before That's Cyrus. what we were doing all before Cyrus is like making Puffy Chair, making Baghead. Cause as we were developing Cyrus, we were just like, well, this is taking a while. Let's make Baghead. And then we're like, oh, this is taking a while. Let's make Dereka. And Fox Searchlight was like, these motherfuckers are just going to keep making stuff. <laughs> we better greenlight this thing. And were you also pitching television ideas too? Like, did you have a. I actually you pitched TV ideas uh, right after Puffy Chair, and not knowing anything about the world. And we had this great idea. We sold it to NBC quickly just got our asses handed to us in that development process and honestly like we sold them a show that what I think is the problem with 99% of shows is pitch is really great can't last for six years like we didn't have the the means of how it could extend we didn't understand that you know um, how did you learn how to how to figure that out we I feel like that's a really different beast like it is such a different beast. one thing versus like how can the show yeah, live with on? Togetherness, we had a long-standing relationship with HBO. They were fans of ours. They had, I don't want to say courted us because it, it, it's not like they were like, please come make a show with us. But they were like, we love you guys. When you're ready, please bring us something. 
Um, and something really interesting happened. Again, we fell into this, but now we really believe in it. Um, is um, we kind of reverse engineered the show to fit what they needed on their network. We had some germs of ideas and some themes we wanted to explore. We had like a um, a much different version of a pilot for togetherness that was based upon just one couple. And HBO said to us like, look, w- you know, we really need a couple show, a show about two couples in their thirties, you know? And it kind of clicked in our brains where we were like, okay, we could like write the show we want to make and then it might not fit in with anywhere. Or what if we just say, what do you need? And we'll just creatively back into that and like drastically improve our chances of getting on the air which is what happened there and what I really try to recommend to people. If you have a general meeting with someone, someone wants to talk to you, don't go in pitching your stuff right away. If you're the kind of person who walks in there and very confidently is like, look, I have a lot of things that I like to explore. I'd like to develop a relationship with you that's meaningful and we're not wasting time development. What do you need? You tell me what you need and I'll back into it for you. That to me, if I was in that meeting, I'd be like, this person is confident and impressive and amenable. I want to work with this person. But it's also, you know, it's not like we just wrote a project for HBO. It was like we had that seed that was there, and we were able to just round it out. And in a weird way, it we worked with HBO on it because they kind of helped us. Like, if you think about it, there have been a lot of feature filmmakers that go to HBO and make a pilot that's, like, maybe even great and exciting and it just goes away. And I think it's because it's hard for feature filmmakers, and it was very hard for us to adapt to what we sort of call like the open universe. You know, because when you're making a feature in the first 20 pages, you're already thinking about how you're going to pay everything off, and you have to discard that completely, and you have to really just open to the infinite possibilities of whatever can happen. And so HBO helped take this idea that honestly was much more of a feature film formed idea and they helped because it was kind of the same characters but they helped us kind of like round it out and open up the world that was a healthy development process the, all of their ideas were really great we were also i think it helped that we had like made five movies so they were very respectful of us at times where we would be like you know we were responsible for all the tone and the feel of what we do but i think you know their development team is really good do you have on togetherness do you have a, a writer's room we have um like everything, uh, our version of a writer's room, which is this really fun thing we do, which is Jay and I technically write all the episodes for uh, the series. Um, But what we do is we meet every Monday with uh, Steve Zissis, who's our co-creator and actor in the show, with Jay Doobie, who's our longtime creative partner and editor. Um, And then we have a writer's assistant, and then we have anywhere from one to two really smart classic veteran female staff writers who know TV better than we do and can help us voice the female characters. So we are coming in there. It's almost like you're doing rough cut screenings of your movie where we come in and we say, this is what we're thinking it should be. Can you guys help us beat this? And then we'll get episode one in shape. We'll go and write it, send a draft. They'll read it, make it 20% better at least with pitches, notes, ideas, and then then we'll start on episode two next week, kind of like pitching the ideas. And It's like when your friends, when you write a screenplay and you give it to your friend and they get back to you two months later. <laughs> we have a system where these people are detained. <laughs> and it's like our friends paid are, are paid and detained yeah. to get back to us within 12 hours. And that, it's, that's what we figured out we needed. We didn't need a writer's room. We didn't need 
we needed smart writers and filmmakers to carry the knowledge of this show with us and to respond immediately when we came up with stuff. And it's been incredible. And, you know, this is just a broad note, including editors in your process anywhere. is such a wonderful thing because they just see through all these lovely things that you're excited about. And we just see him in the back of the room being like, oh, yeah, we're going to cut that on the fucking rough cut, you know. And it's very, very help- sobering but very helpful. He's so sweet about it, too. He's just like, I love this scene. I really do. And I think it's going to be great in the DVD extras. I really, I really do. You guys, how many hours... Like, did you write something today? Did you put anything in your dictaphone today? Like, today, do you write? Today, did you write today, or are you? Uh, today? Yeah, well, um, like today was. Um, today? it's Tuesday. It was Tuesday. Yes, yeah. so we did. We did some music for season two of Togetherness. Um, uh, did some story cracking on one of the Netflix movies that we're producing. We added some notes. So we're, we're making four original movies for Netflix that we're producing. Oh, wow. Um, and so we're kind of gathering all our young filmmakers and helping them right. kind of galvanize. Um, and uh, we're about to open our, uh, you know, get some writing done for season three of Togetherness. So we're kind of kicking around those ideas. Cool. Um, it's Yeah, it's weird when I start talking about all the stuff we're doing. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, yeah. But specifically with writing, I would say, since this is the WGA, uh, I would say that... Um, Mark and I are very, um, we don't write until we know exactly what we're doing. And our writing is not, uh, we, we don't do dictaphone anymore, but it's still that form where it's a sprint. It's a sprint. And when we write, it's like everything is in place. We've told the story to each other in our writer's room or whoever it may be that is critical to it. And when that stuff goes down, like right now, it's easier to write episode. It's easier to write television. I feel like a thirty-minute show is like twenty times easier than a feature. But I mean, Mark's more than me. But I generally will write like ten to fifteen pages a day, uh, wow. and just destroy myself. But it is sprinting, so that I don't. I don't. Our our motto is uh, vomit. Yes. You know, <laughs> vomit, and let other people clean up your vomit. <laughs> so Don't be ashamed of that. It ca- it's going to smell bad. It's going to be chunky, you know? And that's what friends are for. Okay, so do you... Okay, wait, let's talk about producing really quickly. Uh, you've been you've been producing other people's work since 2010, I think. That's been a big part of your your work. It seems like you guys are very committed mentors, much the way... Apatow is breaking actors. You seem to want to break directors, and um, we have one of those directors that you've you've kind of overseen here with us tonight, and that is Sean Baker. And he's made an incredible movie called Tangerine that you guys have produced, and I really recommend it to everyone. And it, I just saw it and loved it. And then why don't you come up, Sean, and we can John talk a Baker. Our mentee. That's right. Sean. Where you get to really see all the mentoring we really do and what it's about. How did you meet Sean? Um, I met Sean. I was part of a jury for the Woodstock Film Festival in like 
was it 05 or 06? When was that? I think it was 08. Was it 08? Okay. And he made this movie called Prince of Broadway. I didn't know anything about Sean. And this movie, I'm supposed to like watch the six DVDs and vote on the winner. Um, and you're not supposed to show it to anybody else. So, of course, I showed it to all my friends while we were watching it <laughs> at home. And we all just freaked out. And this it's a very simple story. You know, it's like set in New York around the world to those guys who kind of sell the knockoff purses near Union Square. Um, and I'm like, cool, you know, gritty urban drama, I'm gonna eat my vegetables, all right, I got it, you know. And then five minutes into the movie, a woman shows up with a little baby and is like, here, this is yours, and she leaves. <laughs> and then it all of a sudden becomes this, like, three men and a baby type screwball comedy inside of an elegant artistic world. And I was like, I've never seen anything like this before. And there's the high-low happening here, the sense of whimsy, fun, comedy with very serious subject matter was incredible. And he had made it for basically no money. Um, so it all feels incredibly real. It's like a documentary. Yeah. And so, you know, he uh, met him at the festival, figured out he had, like, cast this guy who's like from the real world cast real actors around him created this wonderful hybrid that is a narrative film but with some very specific nonfiction elements to it by casting from the world and we became friends thanks guys that's really lovely so you were like he also smells terrific <laughs> so then did and sean how did tangerine come about and how did you start to want to talk about it with these guys um yeah well after prince of broadway i made a film called starlet um which is awesome oh cool thanks and i um after starlet i was i was hoping that that would be sort of my that would open the doors that where i could i could make a much bigger budget film because i i wanted to break out of the micro budget thing um and for a year and a half, it wasn't happening. I had a script ready to go. I had a producer attached, but uh, they were looking to do it at like that $15 million mark. With um, It was a film that took place in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. It was about the Russian mob, and they wanted like A-list actors doing Russian accents. And I was like, oh, that's not really what I planned but um i want to really like keep it grounded and real but um anyway what ended up happening is that we couldn't get any of those a-list actors to even read the script so this thing was like and we couldn't get financiers because we didn't have a-list actors so it was like this cycle that was going on for a year and a half i gave up and i was There's like so much oh. nodding going on right here it's just like <laughs> yeah. The, yeah and i had remembered that actually mark and jay sort of gave me this this offer I don't know if it was ever an official offer, but it was like basically it was like if you ever want to make a micro budget with us, the doors open uh, based on Prince of Broadway. And so um, I was like, you know what, if I don't do something now, I'm not going to make another film. And these were the only guys who were going to offer me any money and, <laughs> and help me out. So I uh, called up Mark and I said, I, I think I'm ready to make that micro budget. And he asked me what the idea was. And I said, you know, the corner of Santa Monica and Highland. And, During um, that time, baby. Yeah. And Mark actually knew about it. So, he was, and I think that uh, it was, um, guys, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a married man. <laughs> but I don't even know if I actually the donuts. Jesus. Yeah, it was all about the donuts. Um, and it was basically there that I think Mark even said over the phone, like, cool, let's go for it. And a few weeks later, I think I gave you a treatment. It was like a five page treatment. And it was basically greenlit over the phone. But then, of course, there was the whole... Then I had to do my work. And there was like an eight-month 
process of research and you know immersion into the world etc but it was it was these guys who were basically there for me you know when nobody else was so and i think well thank you for saying that i mean you know the the key with this movie which sean had to suck up a lot at the front was like he's making it sound like we're a savior you know we gave him the bare minimum that he needed to make this movie but because you know, we were mentoring him in this way. Sean, this is his fourth film. He's a fully developed filmmaker. He doesn't really need us to tell him creatively what to do. We were just in a position to be like, oh, we've made some money. We can just bankroll this thing for you. We can protect you through the process, and then we'll help you sell the movie when it's done because we've done that a bunch, you know. And and it was a really cool process, and we try to encourage this a lot with whether you're a writer in the room or a writer-director, you know, trying to make a movie with uh, the least amount of money possible that you can um, we call it basically like the the if you shit the bed version, which is if you shit the bed, you can still sell this movie for what you put into it, you know. And I knew that with Sean, he wouldn't do that. But I was like, this is going to be a cool, interesting niche film, you know. Uh, I gave him the amount of money, which was we gave him that money, which is like we knew we would make it back no matter what. And then when we when we sold the film, it actually sold for a bit more, and it's been successful, and things are coming in, and so. Well, it's not like a huge money maker. Like, there's been like you know some money to live off of. We've been able to like give back some of that to the LGBT community and stuff, and it worked out pretty well. And whose idea was it to? Because the movie's gotten a lot of ink about it being shot on iPhone, yeah. and it looks beautiful. And how did that come about? How did that notion happen? Well. Um that money that they gave me <laughs> wasn't enough for me to to shoot on film number one or to even shoot on the higher end cameras because I'm on my fifth I'm on my fifth film. This could have been done if it was like your first or second film, but for me, I'm out of favors, so I couldn't shoot on the Red or the Alexa. And then people sometimes ask me, "Well, why didn't you shoot on the DSLRs?" And even that would have added three crew members to my crew, and which I you know, would want to pay because I, I, you know, I feel like you should always be paying your crew members no matter what. Um, and uh, I don't know what led me to a Vimeo channel one night, but there was a Vimeo channel that was focused on iPhone short films and experiments. And I was extremely impressed with what I saw. It was like, because you could shoot HD on your, on your iPhone. Um, it was holding up and I was very impressed and I uh, and it just happened to be at the same time that there was this anamorphic adapter released for the the iPhone that I I contacted the owners about and got I was able to use this in an app that helped out and I remembered the conversation I had with Mark I said you know I'm thinking about the iPhone I'm not sure and it was actually Mark who gave me like the pat on the back it was like and sort of the the encouragement to do it we were rationalizing to ourselves but I think it was good we were like well we're gonna have some non-professional actors here who are not quite used to this so having a smaller device not in their face might help them get naturalism and then we're going to be stealing a ton run and gun on the streets so we're like we'll be actually more fleet of foot yes so that's how we felt that's how we felt good about it (laughs) so i was like yes yeah i mean it's interesting though like the common theme is that everyone is always trying to make the biggest thing they can make and the bigger you go the less power you have, the more you have to lose. You know, Mark and I have... More people involved. The more people, the more people you have, the harder it is to move, the harder it is to change your mind when stuff goes bad, because stuff always goes bad, and you have to pivot. So it's like, to us, it's, it's taken us a while to even articulate it, because we've always come from this place of just like, 
keep it really, 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 really simple, and then you can adapt, and you can have power, like when we made Cyrus or whatever, and we said we can't make this movie. We already had the lowest budget they had, and we had John C. Riley, and they were like, okay, I guess we'll just make that movie. Because it was exactly what Mark was saying, which is when you make a comedy, and it's still a good script in their opinion, even though it wasn't as big set PC, and you have John C. Riley and Jonah Hill and Marissa Tomei and Catherine Keener, you're not going to lose $6 million. You're going to make $6 million just on DVD alone. So we didn't know all this, but it's just been our ethic I mean, Sean comes from that same world. It's just like he, we, we could feel it when he was making his movies. Like, this guy is just getting it done. He is just going out there. I don't even know what you shot Prince of Broadway with, but it was just felt like you. It was an HVX. <laughs> it was an HD yeah. camera. But it's funny you say that because it's, it's, it's so true that, uh, but I've had to be, I've uh, had to always continually convince myself that, I mean, I went to film school, I actually, you know, shot my student films on film, etc. But then all of a sudden we're stuck in a time where the industry is always changing, it's upside down. And I have one of my producers on Tangerine, uh, her name is Shi Ching Zhou, you know, um, she's the one who's always grounding us and saying, you know, it's about the content. It's about the story. It's not about the device you capture it on. And so even when I was like going, looking at my iPhone, going, what am I doing? This is amateur hour. This is like, this is a, a, this is a step back in many ways, it seems. And she would go, what is your favorite film ever made? And I would say, yeah, I know what you're going to say. And she goes, no, seriously, say it out loud in front of the crew. And I say, it's Lars von Trier's The Idiots. And she goes, exactly. It's a Dogma 95 film shot on standard definition. It's about the content. It's not about exactly how you capture it. You know, and so I've, I've it's, it's the people around me who are constantly like getting me back to that and making me realize that. Do you think you'll be like the director in Project Greenlight who's like, I want to shoot only on 35. And you'll be like, I want to shoot only on iPhone. Yeah, we had we had that argument, and uh, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, I, I I still want to shit on film. <laughs> what about? Do you guys think if Marvel or DC came at you and said we want you to do a big superhero movie, what would you say? They have. They have. What did you say? Well, it's a very tricky. <laughs> we got to be very careful with this because it's so easy for us to be haughty and just be like. We stuck to our creative guns, and we just did our thing, and we said no, okay? The thing is, we did say no, but it wasn't like a, you know, oh, we're so above you or anything. There's a, there's a thing that happens to you when you sign on to a $180 million movie. First of all, it becomes your whole life for three years. We like to do lots of different projects, so we had to wipe clean our slate. Uh, I believe just happiness-wise, putting all your eggs in one basket could have been tough for us if it's not going well. But the biggest thing is that movie is not a movie, that movie is a commodity, period. You owe it to the banks. You owe it to everyone to do what needs to be done to make that money back. You owe it to McDonald's. Yes, you owe it to McDonald's <laughs> to make that movie what it is. And if you sign on to that movie without honoring getting that money back, it's actually, I think, immoral and not smart of you to do that. And we're just not in that business. Well, also, we have had this conversation, and we know that all we care about in a superhero movie is maybe the two superheroes who are about to go do something and they're arguing about how the other one maybe always steals the limelight and could you maybe like let me like 
get a little attention on this one. Just like you're, you're so strong, and we're, we're just all we Where's care the about. Ambient? You took the last Ambien, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> all we care about are the personal dynamics. Like we're not built. I don't think we're well built to make. They will come to us and they will say, "We want your sense of naturalism and what you do with relationships so good. We just want it right inside the explosions." And it's like, <laughs> well, I don't know if you're being realistic about what you actually want here. Yeah. You know. And it's like it's 2006 all over again. Yes. Um, Batman and Robin, 98% relationship drama in the Batcave. <laughs> 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 I I think there's a good 12,000 people. That's their favorite movie. But I don't think that's what they're looking for. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, wait. I have a, another question about. So you see, producing is a big is a big mm. piece of this, and and we talked about Sean's project. And do you are you actively seeking out projects as a producer? It seems like stuff is coming your way constantly. Do you have somebody that reads? Uh, do you have an executive that reads? Stuff yeah, we've kind of like expanded a little bit. Like we have uh, our friend Stephanie Langhoff runs our whole company. She also produces togetherness for us. So it's we're not bloated where we have like this big office and we're staffed and we have this overhead. We don't believe in in that. You know, she gets her salary off of like producing our show and then we look for projects. And then uh, our friend Mel Eslin, who's produced for us a lot, runs. We have a deal with Netflix to make small movies, and she does that. But again, it's not this like bloated overhead thing. And I think the difference between the way we produce and the way other people produce is we don't do standard development where we're like, come in and pitch us an idea and let's talk about it for a while. A lot of what we do is just like Sean walks in and says, I got this movie. I can make it. We, I mean, within 40 minutes of that conversation, that movie was greenlit and ready to go and that's not wasting anybody's time we do it at a price that's cheap we sometimes put together movies ourselves where for instance the movie the one i love that we made was oh, like so good oh thank you i was hoping for somebody would do that when i said it <laughs> it's great when you like do that and you know um you guys totally should have clapped you kind of missed it. the boat on that um uh yeah exactly you love that movie right they don't know what we're talking about what we're right talking now. about it was a movie that like I had the concept for, but maybe didn't have the time to put together, and Jay and I didn't really want to direct it, but we'd love to make it. And so I, was, I approached some young filmmakers and was like, here's this basic story. Um, you know, I'm going to be in this movie. We can write it. We can do it from an outline. We'll improvise. We'll cast another female actress, and then we'll pay for the whole movie and get it going. And, and because we're in control of that process and there's no other bank, like you know, within, again, within an hour of that first meeting with those filmmakers, we were greenlit and we were going. How many filmmakers did you see? Did you, was it like an open I just No, audition? I just went to one person who I liked and I was like, oh, oh I know this person and I was like, he's good, let's go with that. Yeah. That's cool. Um, cool. Well, do we, should we open it up for, is the time right for that? Time is perfect for that. <laughs> oh, good. I get to pick? Yeah, you do. Okay. Tangerine. Oh, uh, in regards to all of you, I mean, uh, first off, thank you so much for Tangerine. It's a great film That's and so all, everything that you guys have done. Uh, the kind of question that I have is, you know, we're living in an extremely expensive city, and you guys are, like you said, you know, you're cutting pretty close to the bone in regards to your profits. How is it that you're able to supplement your income during those dry periods to when you're making a film that's not making you a lot of money? I mean, we 
Donut Mark time. and I came up in Austin, and you can live on $15,000 a year in peanut butter and jelly there pretty easily. Uh, we made our money editing bad independent films before while we were cutting our teeth and getting it done. But also some corporate editing on the side. We would edit for like a church TV show in Austin for like 25 bucks an hour. And we're like, oh, this is great, you know. So, um, yeah, that was finding like little day jobby stuff that didn't like totally suck up all 40 hours and keeping it freelance was good. You guys, yeah. I think your dad just winked at me. <laughs> He's a big... Nope, Edison falling asleep. Nope, that's up. I thought. <laughs> just when I close is when I sleep. Okay. <laughs> um, really quick, I also did uh, a lot of corporate stuff, um, but I was lucky enough to have a show that I was one of, uh, a co-creator on that sort of kept me afloat for several years. It was a show called Greg the Bunny, and it had an inc- yeah, it had a it had several incarnations over the years. So there were like those dry times, but there were also like years where I could okay, cool, I can pay rent this year. So, um, but that's just something that I I am so lucky to that fell in my lap, and it was something that. Uh, it, it, I encourage if if you have that second career that's still within the industry, it it's it's wonderful because it it helps you continue to you know experiment and and hone your craft etc. While your you know while your dream may be you know something else maybe features or you know uh, dr- you know hour long drama television etc. Can I share a story about you? <laughs> I found out about Prince of Broadway separately from Mark because our friend Ross Partridge was buying a 10-speed yeah, bicycle oh, yeah, yeah, okay. in the basement of your East Village okay, apartment. Yes, I he sold had bikes. A, he sold bikes. I was a bike messenger. And your dad was in Pennsylvania, right? Or oh, no, I'm in Jersey. In Jersey, and he would buy up bikes and bring them to the city, and you would sell them to hipsters like Ross. <laughs> And and Ross met you yes. and got a DVD of Prince yes. of Broadway, and this was I think before. Was that before? No, no, it was, it was, some, it was after the movie. Seen it. Okay, and then he sent me that DVD. He's like, wow, "This dude cool. that sold me a bike, he made this movie. It's the best fucking thing I've ever seen." Oh, that's funny. And Ross was in my living room while we were watching the movie. They got to talking about movies, and Sean's, you know, he's like, "What else?" And Sean's like, "I'm a filmmaker, you know." And Ross is like, great. Have you anything you you know made? You might have seen. No, I've just like made the small movie that's just starting festival circuits, whatever. And he's like, it's called Prince of Broadway. And Ross is like, that's like my favorite movie. I saw it. I saw it in Mark's living room. I wasn't supposed to see it in Mark's living room, but I saw it in Mark's living room. The putting us together, lovely, you guys, coming together live. <laughs> I charged them way too much for that bike, by the way. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Yes. In the gray. Sorry. So what about the acting part? Did you guys like, did you decide to do that out of default or was it something as well? Yeah. The acting, it really was out of, out of default. It was like Jay was old enough to learn how to work the camera. I was little. I didn't know what to do. So he just put me in front of it and we developed a little bit of a rhythm and our first short film that was successful was us returning to that form and saying, let's do it like we did when we were little. And, and then it just kind of developed what, what, what we saw as the initial value of me being in the puffy chair was, um, if the script's not perfect, cause we don't actually know what makes a great feature script. We don't know yet. So it feels weird while we're in there. Jay can help point it out to me. And because we're the, both the co-writers of the script, we can improvise it along and scoot it along. So what I might lack in acting experience, I would make up for in value by being one of the filmmakers inside of the scene and have the ability to steer it. 
do you feel like it's important for for writers to have acting experience? It's beneficial. You think one process how aids the other? Is it mandatory or, or not mandatory? But certain. I don't know. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think if if writers definitely, I I think it. I think it would be very helpful if writers had directing experience. Yeah, that's what I would spend uh, because I think something that um, it's very, it seems similar to write a script, but there's really very little in common between writing a script and fostering weird emotional interactions with strange human beings in front of a hundred people on the on the most artificial space that you can imagine. It's a very, very different thing. I think, I mean, I just feel directors are helped by writing, by by acting a little bit, writers. It, it just helps if you understand what people are going through. But I would agree with you. If you're going to pick one thing to spend your time on, try to, you know, s take your, you know, your feature film that you really want to make, okay? You love this feature. It's so great. Nobody's making it for you. It's so depressing. This sucks. Take the best scene from that movie, the one that is, you know, domestic enough that can be shot inside of your apartment or in the car, and and start directing that scene with actors you know, and direct it once, and it's terrible. Then go direct it again, um, and keep shooting that on your iPhone just for five bucks, you know. And then at a certain point, you might be like, oh shit, I'm getting good at this. Maybe even good enough to like submit it as a short film to a festival. Then all of a sudden, you're not this writer who is like waiting for someone to direct your movie. You're like a writer director who has a short in a festival, and someone might like it. It might give you fifteen grand to make a feature that feels like it, and you could write and direct that. And then you got all this kind of autonomy. That's a good path to think about. Where the hell are you when I brought that up? You're just sitting there quiet. I was mad she brought it up before I did. Dying up I here, man. Be the one to really? open up that uh, bottle. But um, this might be an annoying question because I think it's purposely open to I think you already know it's annoying. It is. It definitely is annoying. But can you... You're like walking right into a fire right now. You see the fire. <laughs> can you give me your interpretation of the last minute? Absolutely not. No. Come on. No, no. That, that it's you, you're you just going to leave it up. You think you want that, but then I give it to you, and then it's No, I, I definitely have an opinion of yeah. what it is, but I want to hear what you... Yeah, also, if people haven't seen it, it would be kind of weird to, to, to spoil it up up here. We can have a separate panel Sidebar. that's just about the yeah. ending, yeah. So, a question about, like, juggling your, your acting work. Like, when you started doing Transparent, did you call Mark and be like, so I'm going to do this show, and you were like, what the fuck? You're supposed to be writing... No. no, we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I called him and I was like, someone wants me to act in a TV show and I'm not an actor um, because I've been shooting everything. And I was like, should I do this? And I told him the idea and he was like, are you fucking kidding? Yeah, you should do that. I think what I said specifically was like, I have been having affairs on our relationship by being an actor on other people's projects. And it's really rewarding and wonderful. And you need to go have an affair on me and see how great this is. Go, f go fuck somebody else. It's okay. Just, 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 just do it. Everybody, everybody wants it. And it was a doozy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> awesome. Yes. 
um, how did the league and the Mindy Project fill in your lap? Uh, the league well, came out of uh, the creators of the show really liking the puffy chair, uh, realizing they had great comedians that they were about to cast, but wanting to have a couple of anchors in the show um, that were also good at uh, assists with those jokes and good with story. And I think that they saw us maybe playing that role. And then the Mindy Project came. We met with Mindy. We were going to pitch her this really little movie we wanted her to be in. Um, and it was like right when she was just like blowing up with the show and realized, oh, she's way too busy to do this thing. But we all got along really well. Um, she perceived uh, our, our funny dynamic of being like uh, slightly sensitive but also kind of type A. Um, and she was like, ooh, I'm going to cast these guys as asshole midwives. This will be really interesting. <laughs> So she called us and was like, do you want to do this thing? And, and we were like, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> These are like ball girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you guys are getting good. <laughs> Wimbledon. Thank you for this. This is great. And, uh, you know, I think your independence in Hollywood is something that I root for. And it surprises me that more people don't just go out and make their own shit. Because you know, I'm, I'm a fiercely independent filmmaker and I'm happy in that space. Um, but my question for you is about Hollywood as a business. Mm -hmm. You know, like, people put so much power into the hands of the studios. What do you think is going to happen if you could have a crystal ball? Do you perceive that the studios are going to continue having the power that they have or because of technology mm -hmm. and increasingly independent filmmakers that we can take that away from them and just go and, you know, do our own thing more and yeah. more? It's a long conversation, but what I can, I mean, what I can speak to is I feel like where we're headed to in this industry is ownership is something that's very very important is being the owner of your content and being able to license that to certain people or and maybe even creating your own channels with as you are branded you know we accidentally fell into making a bunch of stuff that we own and now we're realizing how valuable it is to actually have made a movie for $50,000 and own it and over the years we're going to make so much more money not only create we're talking a lot about creative freedom and how great that is but let's scratch that for a second let's just talk business we're going to make infinitely more money on a movie like The Puffy Chair and Baghead that we made for $15,000 than we did directing a studio movie at Fox Searchlight down the line because we get to own it, resell it year after year after year after year. So I think that's where we're headed and where we should be focused. And you could maybe even reboot it. The Poofy Chair. The Poofy Chair! <laughs> Um, I'm curious a little bit about process, and this may be a longer question with a much shorter answer, I'm not sure, but the, the kind of drama that all three of you work in is this kind of high drama that works really well but walks like a, a razor-thin line between sentimentality and melodrama, and you never really step onto either side of that. And I'm curious how conscious you are during the process of kind of trying to avoid those and embrace them in the right times. Uh, I mean, for us, it everyone talks about it as this tightrope, and uh, I would just say that our process is I, I look at Mark and I say it, and his eyes either light up or they don't. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. I mean, we do some editorial dialing in of like, let's get this score in the right place, and oh, oh shit, it's pushing, let's pull it back. And so there's some, some... Yeah, I would say, yeah, and that's in the creative process, in the creation process. In the editorial process, we test the movie rigorously on 
not test audiences, but like our friends and our, people that we hold in high esteem, people like Sean with like great taste and who honestly respect us enough to be honest with us. And yeah. Like, dude, you're pushing here. You're shoving us down. So we, what we want to do is make exactly what we want to make, but we want to make sure that it's landing with people like us, like s- just people who are smart and like want to laugh, but don't want to be pandered to, you know? So we're basically just like looking for more of ourselves and audience members, basically. Yeah. Same thing. I, I, I surround myself with a real creative team. You know, even my producers, I, I consider them creative producers. So uh, the person I mentioned earlier, Xu Ching Zhou and then Darren Dean, they're both, they both can come to the set and judge uh, sensibility and judge and tell me whether I'm going too far over on one side or or not because they know what films I like and they know what sort of wheelhouse we're playing in and there's that constant there's a constant dialogue it's like I, I always am up for I, I want everybody, even a PA, to be telling me their opinion, because I want I want to just I I I'm I'm not so sure. <laughs> so. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is that Jay and I have been uh, it's been thrust in our face how many times we're wrong about what we think works best, and when we get into editorial, and I know there are certain filmmakers who can see a movie from frame to frame, front to finish. That's not us. So um, our ego has been beaten out of us enough at this point. So we say, if we're getting that confusion point while we're shooting, we're like. We don't really know. Let's get a couple of versions here and ask for forgiveness from our actors and say, I'm sorry, I can't like lead you through this. I kind of don't know what's best. Like, Give me a couple of things. We'll try it this way. We'll know in, in post-production. And that, the more we do that, the better chance of, of not messing up. What is, why do people think that certainty makes good art? Because what cer- the fuck certainty is Certainty looks so cool on set. <laughs> It looks so cool. We actually don't look that cool on set. You walk into our sets and they're like, these guys know what they're doing. <laughs> like, um, they're stressed out and overeating together and <laughs> sweating balls in the yeah. corner. These are our fearless leaders? No. Yeah. But like, why does certainty make good art? And everyone talks about it as such. Oh, they knew exactly what they wanted and they had it all dialed in. And that's why the movie is cardboard. I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why that ethic has still pervaded and I think it really it's what Mark said is that we all want certainty because it makes us feel comfortable and if I would say anything about like why Mark and I have a good track record or why at least I like the movies that we make consistently is because we've gotten comfortable with sitting in chaos and sitting in not knowing and just it's painful it's very painful to be on set and to write these things where they are execution dependent, they're dependent upon the emotions of strange people who come into your lives and you have to like forge weird relationships with them and like love them and teach them about what it is you're trying to do. It's so weird. And we've just gotten good at just like accepting that it's just not gonna be it's not gonna be certain. And the more certain that we tend to get that's when we get in the editorial and we're like, this scene's not alive. Yeah, there's something to be said for the happy accident. I mean, the, I, I've come to just love those happy accidents so much that we actually structure the way that we, uh, I think, we have our films uh, 70% controlled, 30% uncontrolled. Now, that 30%, 
really puts us in a situation where, yeah, things could go drastically wrong, but they could also go drastically right. And a lot of the happy accidents in my films have come from that 30% of just a completely unstructured, you know, just jumping into it and seeing what happens. How can we see Tangerine? Um, well, it's just funny you should ask. <laughs> Tangerine is now out on iTunes. You can rent it for four ninety nine. Right. Um, yeah, we just had a theatrical run. It went really, really well. We're we're running like the first uh, major, I guess you know, academy campaign for you know uh, transgendered actresses and and um, it's and writers go. Yeah, you got some digi screeners. There's some good script up in there. And you watch that shit for free. You need to send Sean a $5 check. That's right. <laughs> P.O. Box, Donut Time, Santa Monica. <laughs> um, and the Blu-ray and DVD just came out today. So. Oh, awesome. Woo! Yeah. I'm really bad at choosing. So when you guys get stuck, because it happens to everybody, is there an unconventional source of inspiration that you guys tap into that fires you up? Donut about, time. Uh, in the writing process in particular, yeah. Um, it's weird. I mean, Jay and I have each other, so um, it's usually a, uh, the ping-ponging of drafts that really helps us out, you know? Um, of Like, we, we keep going. We don't sit in a room and write together. We write independently when we're physically writing. And so being able to come up against a brick and not just bash our head into it is to pass it off, you know? And that, I think, doesn't have to be your actual writing partner on the thing. It can be anyone. It's, again, having the ego beaten out of us. I, we don't always know best, um, so don't keep beating your head. Like, ask for help. It's nothing wrong with asking for help. But even when we didn't have stuff going on, we were always, like talking about like six scripts um and i think that is the biggest thing and that's what i've noticed with our friends who are productive and who don't get stuck is i mean you just got to have if you're just you know doing the script and it's just staring you in the face have an affair on that script and this i mean a lot of you have probably experienced this but We've had this experience, and tons of our friends have had this experience. Is you work on this one script, and you're being very, very precious about it. And then you start cheating on that script, and you write another script in like two weeks. That's the movie, not the precious one. It's always that movie that just pours out of you, weirdly, subconsciously. That's what you're supposed to be making. Not all this intellectual, maybe later, you pull that one together. But just, I... I, I you know, Mark's better at this than me, and he forces me to do this, but just volume is helpful because then there is no stopping. You know, you can't... And there are times, I mean, we we are still harboring scripts and ideas that we were talking about in high school. Just, <laughs> I mean, we, they're back there, and we will talk about them on a plane ride sometimes, and then it'll just go away for like two or three years. And then one of these days... One of us will get a hold of it, and and it'll all happen in like a month where it just gets written in a month because it's ready then, you know. So just don't allow yourself to be held up, you know. Because everybody's got like 100 stories. You mentioned the sprint. Is that – do you define that in any particular way where you're, you're going into a specific room for a specific amount of time with no email or – how do you kind of discipline yourself to create that vomit draft, that volume? 
I mean, it's all it's all it's all different. We've come, we've gotten good at it now, so we have to we don't have to be as strict with ourselves as we used to be. You know, like um, like I used to kind of like try to like go away a little bit more and like put the phone away. I can kind of have a little more willpower now to just get through it. But the sprint is very specifically like the moment that you can't wait any longer to start writing this thing because it's like coming. You know, um, and then when even though you're tired and you feel like you might not be writing the best stuff, I think it behooves you to keep going because even though you're thinking like, ah, I'm not going to write the best scene while you're in that zone. Again, the pacing will be great if you write it fast. You can clean up all the other stuff later. I mean, for me, it's writing is excruciating. I hate it. It's just horrible. But it has to happen, you know. It has to happen, and so so like I have a thing where I turn my uh, web stuff off, and I will write for like maybe like an hour, and that's if it's going slow. If I get a great blast in like thirty-seven minutes, then I'll turn it back on and I'll let myself like look at email <laughs> for like two minutes, and I'm like, oh god, I love email. <laughs> I love your email. Emails that I hated two hours earlier. Because nothing's worse than the bondage of writing. I like having multiple scripts going at once and having some nice low-hanging fruit to treat myself to. Where it's just like, oh, there's like a, there's a rewrite on one of the script where I have to go through and I have to like make sure I turn the age of the character to the right age. Like something so fucking easy to do. And I save that up on my checklist for when my fortitude's low. That's the nice thing. How how many things are on your slate in terms of how many projects are you producing? God. It's so depressing. <laughs> it's a lot. It's scary. 20? Is it 20? I mean, there's like there's, there's 8 to 10 movies that are in active development uh, right now, but then there's another, honestly, 20 more that are circling that kind of thing, and then there's you know at least another 10 television shows, and Jay and I do we do other things too we have the acting projects that we're involved with um we're some stuff we're doing right now that hasn't been announced yet that's taking up a lot of our time in the writing realm and we're doing like you know i don't know there's a lot yeah like same time next year we did reboot same time next year um that that is not a movie we're going to make but that was a that was like a job where we're like oh this is cool they came to us they liked us we pitched the movie, and then we were like, guys, same time next year, it takes place in a cabin, okay? Here's how you make this movie. We get the two hugest movie stars we can get. Pay them each a million dollars. Give them each, like, 20% of the box office back end, and we'll make it for, like, $2 million, right? Yeah, that's So great. exciting, so exciting. And they're like, why would we do that? We don't make movies that way. No, we don't make movies that way. And we're like... You should make movies that way because it's so cheap and everybody's going to win. And they're like, no, we need to like bring that production value up and give people something in a cinematic way. Like, no, 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 no. The two biggest movie stars in the world. Cheaply, let's do it, you know. And so we walked. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, touching base on that with uh, so many projects. Um, uh, growing concern with all of this due to the fact our, that... Our health. Well, not. Yeah, you should. I mean, well, talk to our mom. Yeah. She's worried about us too. Well, so. that that's one of the main things. But also, um, so much content is coming out. Like I knew togetherness. Um, the one I love has been on my Netflix queue for like 
I want to say a year and a half, yeah. and I keep trying to get to it. Tonight. But, but I can't. Yeah, tonight. Well, no, but, I, got, I got 400 movies in my queue, and I, love, I want to see them. I don't get to yeah, them. Yeah, that, that's that's my whole thing is yeah. if um, I'm sure you guys aren't the only ones uh, doing this. or I mean, you're inspiring so many other people to do this. Hopefully, we'll, there will be plenty of more uh, Mark and J. Duplasses. But with so much coming out in the future, how do you – I mean, this is for all of you. How do you um, – see that in terms of viewership like i said yeah. something this is great you got to see this is great you got to see this great i only have time to see i'm yeah. talking in general for my, my i think you bring up a really good point and i hear this a lot and you know um my very very strong feeling is um on one side there's maybe there should be less stuff so that we don't all have to watch it the consequences of that is that lots of people's life dreams of being a creative artist and having their stuff get made and make a living at it don't get to occur because we're making less stuff. Or the other problem is you got a couple too many movies on your queue and you're a little frustrated you're not getting to them. <laughs> Any day I will take this. This is not our problem. Follow your dreams. Make your stuff. Don't even blink. But also, garbage everywhere. let's make be honest. Like, I don't know if you guys feel this way. I feel this way. There's so much good stuff. There is so much good stuff right now. Do you remember eight years ago when there was like ten good movies in a year? Period. End of story. And like one good TV show. That's what it was like. And everybody's worried and complaining. I think the truth is is that there's way more stuff. And even if you make something really good, you're going to make a lot less money on it overall yeah. the money's going to come down the money's coming it's down get devalued but there's so much better stuff there's so much more specific stuff that can reach people it's great it's great yeah. so everyone I'll give in you an room. example the positivity like networks are saying now well because there's so many good general shows out there i need to actually find something that is so niche oriented and specific that it attracts my 15 dollars a month subscriber i need to put transparent on the air that show doesn't get made at another time when people are looking for niche things that reach out and grab we're actually like now in this wonderful thing where they're like i don't need all four quadrants of the audience to come i need passionate niches who will come and that makes for like really unique awesome content so lots of positives to the side of what we're going and on. because it got made and it's great transparent is now a phenomenon and a hit it did grow beyond what we thought it was going to be it was like a web show on amazon and now it's like this huge thing you guys i'm being told that we have to to rap. We can't rap because I gotta say something okay. first. Will you do the? Okay, she's an extremely successful writer who's busy and has a life, and she came <laughs> to let us talk and really research this. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. This is Kiwi. But more importantly, she wrote a movie called Legally Blonde, and she invented the bend. I told you. Snap. She invented Bend and Snap from Legally Blonde. And to this, we must bow. Thank you. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to be bending and snapping yeah. right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, you. to your thank parents. You guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Sean. See Tangerine. <laughs>